0: Yeah, I'm still thinking about the the new wave of American true crime. New wave of American true crime sleuths. And one thing that's so strange about it is... It's not just the communities that form of, like, Nancy Drew Jr. detectives. It's also the eagerness for new information, which I totally understand. Like if you're interested in something, especially, you know, something that's kept under wraps, like an investigation, you're never content with the details. And it's true for even, you know, through my mafia research, it's like sometimes you're like, I wish the FBI or you know, this indictment would just share everything. But I mean, it's an an investigation for a reason. And they don't share things on purpose, for various reasons. But when people become invested in a case, they want to know everything, and they feel entitled to that. Especially if they feel like they're participating in some way. Even if if it's just behind a computer screen. And what's made things strange is social media. You know, it's made so many things strange. But what's made it particularly strange is... You know, thinking about this uh, Delphi murders case that I was talking about the other night. You know, information has leaked where, um, like, documents and things will leak. Like, people are able to get a hold of them one way or another. I know recently that, uh, like, some law enforcement documents leaked. And, of course, the public got a hold of them. And those tend to have names and, and things that come up in the investigation. And... That's not necessarily good. Well, it satisfies people's curiosity and fuels their theories. It, uh, (laughs) you can see where it goes because sometimes the names that come up in these documents are real people. I mean, they're always real people and they have social media accounts and they have families. And that's something that's very foreign to me is the idea of contacting someone's relatives who you have no other reason to contact, but you hear about it a lot. You hear about it even if just, it's like there was a, a police officer who was involved in some kind of situation, a shooting, and you heard about like people contacting his family with death threats. You always hear about these death threats. And I can wholeheartedly say, I can, from, from the bottom of my heart, you know, I can say that I've never, I've never even written a draft of a death threat to anybody in my life and the people who do send those they're not necessarily unhinged they can be totally normal people totally normal people will contact the relative of somebody who's involved in some kind of controversy i mean you you see it with politics you see it with social issues as well Well, you hear that a lot from people who are popular on YouTube, people who are popular for one reason or another. We'll talk about how they frequently receive death threats. And it's kind of commonly understood that those aren't to be taken terribly seriously. That it's just something people do to harass each other. But it's still kind of crazy. I mean, not kind of, it is. Especially because otherwise, ostensibly normal people do it. But going back to the idea of like documents getting released or persons of interest getting named in an investigation, especially when it's not something that law enforcement has said publicly in a press release. But this happened recently, apparently, with the Delphi murders, where there's a, you know there's people who get named and then people reach out. They stalk somebody's social media. They find their phone number. And you're actually getting in the cop's way when you do that. And I wonder what that feels like. You know, usually a, someone is a person of interest. Especially in a case that involves, you know, the murders of girls, teenage girls. You know, usually someone's a person of interest because there's other stuff in their history or in their behavior that shows they're not a great person, you know, to say the least. But still, there's a difference between not being a great person or having a certain pattern of behavior versus committing a very specific crime that you are being accused of. But people don't seem to have any boundaries, and they, in this age of new American true crime and internet and social media people just can't seem to resist the urge to get involved even when it's a detriment to an investigation so I guess that goes on all the time with these cold cases that have developed kind of a a fan base because that's what it is and people feel entitled to information and then they feel that it's appropriate to involve themselves and, uh, I mean, what, do you, what else needs to be said about that? It's a problem. It's just a huge problem that people feel comfortable doing that. But I think it's gone hand in hand with this. As true crime has turned into a fandom, I think people get removed from the reality of it. I mean, it's called true crime for a reason. But when you hear that phrase, I don't even know that people hear it right. I don't even know that people hear that as true as in, <coughs> this is a, this is real. I think true crime has become just another genre to some of these people. And it's easy for it to become that, you know, someone who used to follow it pretty closely. One of the reasons why I phased it out was because after a certain point in time, <laughs> what do you what are you even learning you know what are you even doing not that i feel like you have to ask that about everything that you find interesting but that's kind of what i'm getting at is when interest turns into indulgence and just one look at the true crime trend over the last few years tells you it really is a fandom as everything seems to be these days, right? (laughs) You know, it seems like the the road to fandom knows no limits. But, uh, I don't know, It's just a side of this that's so bizarre to me that, you know, it's not just that people will focus way too much on persons of interest, which, you know, we're all interested in. I admit, when I come across that, in a cold case i find it interesting but people see what they want to see and sometimes somebody does have compelling evidence linking them or circumstantial evidence linking, linking them to a crime but you'll also see what you want to see and people become very opinionated they become very passionate about their pet theories and each time they revisit their pet theory they become more convinced They see the details they want to see and ignore those they don't. But they also contact the families of victims and things as well. And some of them put themselves out there. You know, there are some family members of victims in various cases. Like I remember with the original Night Stalker, with Joseph D'Angelo, before he was caught. There were some relatives of the victims on some forums and things. Because at that point, they were just trying to do whatever they could to get as much information they could. They wanted the perpetrator to be caught after decades. The case was truly cold at that point. Until the DNA, until they started using this new DNA technology, the case was pretty much as cold as you can get. They had nobody in mind. They had never even heard of Joseph D'Angelo. The investigators, he wasn't on their radar at all. So, the power of that DNA technology turned a cold case hot. But I remember, like, the sister of one of the murder victims was on a forum, the daughter of another one of the murder victims, and then some other kind of anonymous people who claimed to have been related to some of the attack victims and things like that. No reason to disbelieve them. They weren't making any egregious claims. Um, but sometimes, yeah, like family members will kind of put themselves out there. But then other times, you know, in the age of social media, people are so easy to track down that people will track down the relatives and ask them questions and involve them when they're not even involved. And, you know, of course they they can say as much as they want or don't want, but it's still pretty wild that people can and do do that to the extent that they do. But just to segue, I was thinking about interrogation techniques because apparently in that case, in the Delphi murders case, there is uh, a kid, I think I mentioned this in the other episode, but there's a kid, He's I think he's in his 20s, and he's currently incarcerated on child porn charges. And he was running these catfish accounts where they would contact underage girls and pretend to be an attractive teenage boy with a bunch of money, and successfully get girls to send them pictures and just have, you know, they basically would develop these personas and manipulate impressionable girls. Which is an interesting thing to me, because I've joked before about how in the early days of the internet, everybody seemed to be convinced That you were one click away from falling into a pedophile's trap to the point where people were afraid to even use the internet they were afraid to let their kids even get online and that was actually less dangerous then i didn't even think about this until the other day reading about this stuff like i didn't know the extent like i hear about catfishing you know i hear about different things that happen on social media involving kids and things but I never really thought about it. I don't pay attention to that stuff very much. So it kind of blew my mind, like the extent of this catfishing of young girls. Because it's so easy. First of all, so many very young people have cell phones. And they're also usually more technologically adept. Some loud cars. They're also usually more technologically adept than their parents. They're digital natives. So even if some sort of guideline has been been put in place, I mean, I remember doing that. You know, I remember like, you know, internet and TV restrictions and kids were getting around it way back in the day. But, uh, you know, with the cell phones, kids of course are very good at using them. I mean, I was blown away some years back. Some friends were babysitting their friend's kid and we all went to a hockey game together. And I think he was like four years old. He wasn't very old, I think he was about four. And they handed him their cell phone to play a game and it was totally natural to him. Like even though he was four years old, his, uh, his dad, I guess, would give him, let him play with the cell phone. And what sh- you know shocked me about it, because I don't spend a lot of time around kids, was just that he knew exactly how to use it and what he was doing. It was, it was totally natural to him. So the same, I'm sure, I mean, you imagine like a 13 or 14 year old girl, you know, she can pretty much do what she wants. Unless, unless her parents are over her shoulder all the time, she can pretty much do what she wants online. She can download apps, she can make accounts, take pictures of herself. And, you know because of that though it's like we're at a much more dangerous phase when it comes to online predators I, you know i never really thought about it just because you know when i was a kid when i was a teenager and the internet was new barely anybody could even take a photo of themselves you know, some people had webcams some people had digital cameras but even then even if you somehow had or a scanner even if you had the ability to take a photo of yourself it was difficult to even upload it you know you couldn't even necessarily upload a photo yourself so uh that's a whole other side of it you know so it was and then because of that there were just less photos online in general so it's like if you wanted to make a, a catfish account or anything like that It's not like there was even that much to choose from, whereas now you could just go to any kid's social media profile. You could find any attractive teenage boy's social media profile and just steal his photos. There's probably hundreds, there's probably thousands of them. Like if you go to some vain guy's Instagram page, there's probably thousands of photos to choose from. You could effectively take on his entire identity and just tweak it slightly. And that's exactly what this kid did in indiana he was running this catfish account where he pretended to be this rich teenage boy and he had access to, to so many photos that he cultivated this entire persona to draw impressionable young girls in give them attention because i mean you even see that with adults i mean every once in a while i'll get a facebook request and it's some fake woman it's some obviously fake woman. She has like model, she has like professional model photos of herself and some name that doesn't fit. And you look, take one look at her profile and it's clear this is a fake account of some kind. It's just blatant. You don't even have to think about it. But I always just look, you know, cause you, you never know. You never know. I mean, somebody added me a few weeks ago. And based on their name, I would have sworn it was some fake foreign account. But I realized, oh, you know, my friend Tony, his true name, like his actual real name sounds foreign. And he uses that online. And I realized, I looked at it and I was like, oh shit, that's him. That's Tony. But my initial thought was, this is some scammer. So I always take a look, when I get one of those requests, I take a look just to make sure it's not somebody I know or who has some connection to me. But with these women, with these fake accounts, you just know right away it's somebody pulling some kind of scam. But when I look at the page, you'll see like a profile photo on the main page, and you'll see a bunch of comments in response, and it's all men from different parts of the world. You'll see African men, Indian men, you know, in Africa and in India. You'll see guys in the Midwest. And they're like oh looking beautiful oh you look you look so hot here it's very similar to you know what i've said about image boards where women will post seductive photos of themselves or pornographic photos and like you look and like where they'll they'll caption the image like do you want to come over and blah 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 my blah 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 and there, there are many men who respond to that with, Sure do. Oh God, I sure do. Just let me know when. You know, it's the same sort of mindset where these guys are responding to, you know, a pornographic image a girl posts as if she's really asking them that question or addressing them. Sure do. And it's the same thing with this Facebook stuff where you'll see a woman just post a photo of herself that's clearly some professional model on a beach somewhere and nothing about it passes the you know your intuition just tells you everything you need to know about it but guys are like oh my god you look beautiful oh thank you so much for adding me you know it's a less explicit version of the same thing but what do you think is going to happen when like let's say a 13 year old girl and we know how self-conscious teenage girls are, not just teenage girls, but we know in particular how self-conscious teenage girls are, if you're 13 years old and you don't have experience with guys, you know, some, and and you're in this world of social media, so like social media is already a huge part of the world as it is, you're being born into this new world as a digital native where everybody's on social media, and from, from what I understand, you know, so much of teenagers' social lives these days revolve around social media a lot of people it's not just teenagers but teenagers in particular and some attractive teenage boy adds you and he and he shows an interest in you what do you think is going to happen like yeah there's probably a lot of girls who are just like oh i know this there's something wrong here there's probably tons of teenage girls who are just like oh there's something really wrong here i don't trust this but all you need is one You know, anybody who has that predatory mindset is playing a numbers game. It's like Ted Bundy used to, you know, pretend that he had a broken arm and ask women to help him carry things to his car. And there are women who remember a guy, and he would use his own name, which is crazy, just as a side note. That's what's always blown my mind about Ted Bundy is when he would try to abduct women, like when he would play his little games he would tell them his name was Ted and he wouldn't wear a disguise I'm just like that's so uh, it's like using a uh, it's like how the most effective lies are rooted in truth it's like by telling them his real name and not wearing a disguise yeah he's got this ruse about a broken arm but by telling them his real name he could state that with confidence he, he could communicate with confidence because he's actually being himself, which is crazy. But that blew my mind as a kid when I first heard about that, where Ted Bundy would tell women his name was Ted and they would later, there was a police sketch and it said, Ted. And it was like, this guy asked me to help him carry stuff to my car and I didn't, I didn't help him. But he was playing a numbers game where a hardcore predator like that, all he needs is one woman to help him. All he needs is one woman to get close to his car to help him carry something. And so it's the same thing with these catfisher type guys where I'm sure tons of little girls who are on social media get a message from a strange boy and they're just like, oh, something's wrong, or I shouldn't be doing this. But all it takes is one. And in the case of social media, you know, you could just be doing that all night. You could contact a hundred people a night. And it sounds like that's what this kid was doing, the kid who got connected to the Delphi murders where he would just, he was this obese kid in Indiana who just smoked a bunch of weed and he would just hang out on these social media accounts and he would contact other, its part of some sort of kiddie porn network where they like have these fake accounts and they talk to young girls and manipulate them. But that, the numbers game of that, you know, it's just you're inevitably going to, there's going to be a girl who gets a message from a teenage boy who looks attractive, and they're like, wow, he's interested in me. Wow, this, this boy, he's interested in me. It's like you want to believe, you know, you want to believe that there's some truth here. And uh, it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, you know, because uh, there's just inevitably a certain number of people will fall into the net. But with this one in particular, the reason this kid got connected to the case is and he, he was already in jail for this, for being part of this uh, like kitty porn distribution network And then they discovered after these girls died in Indiana, after these girls were murdered, that the last person apparently to contact them before they died was this catfishing account. And he was apparently trying to get the girls to meet up with him. However, the kid who's in jail on the kiddie porn charges has an alibi, and I think like cell phone records indicate that he was far from the murders. He doesn't look like the guy who was caught on the video. Cause that's the one that i mentioned where right before the girls were killed one of them recorded cell phone video that was recovered from the crime scene of a, a strange man approaching them and commanding them to go down the hill almost certainly the murderer and the kid looks nothing like this guy this guy's clearly and somewhat older but then it came out that like multiple people in this kid's household were using that account Apparently multiple people were using this account and uh, there's strong indication that it was his father and his father's a guy with a shaky history, has a history of violence, a history of interest in underage girls. There's just a lot there. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that strongly indicates this kid had knowledge of what happened that he was involved with this catfish, that he ran this catfishing account, but somebody else was using it too. And the father doesn't really look like the guy in the footage either. But because these guys are a part of this weird kitty porn network, you don't know who they had contact with. There's so many layers to that. And what makes it even more terrifying is There was another girl who had contact with the catfishing account a week later, another teenage girl in Indiana. And she too, the numbers game sucked her in too, where she gave this attractive teenage boy her address and told him she'd be willing to let him come over to her house. And she got home from school that day, on the day that she was supposed to meet this teenage boy after giving him her address. She got home from school and she saw a man in a ski mask looking in through the window. So that's a couple indications that this catfishing account is connected to an adult predator. But it's not the fat, you know, pedophile who's in prison. So it's either, you know, the the indication is it's either his father or somebody else they're close to. And who knows who they're in contact with? Who knows what these CD networks are all about? Who knows who they know? But the current belief is that this kid's father is probably the killer. I don't know. I think there's strong indication. I mean, something's there. Either it's the most unholy of coincidences, or uh, you know, the, these guys are this father and son, this sick duo, are connected somehow. But uh, what's interesting though is interrogation techniques. Because these transcripts got leaked of an interrogation of the, the pedophile kid in prison where it's clear the, the police are trying to get him to admit that his dad did it. And he's so evasive and he, he, he's such a bad liar that it's clear he's hiding something. But it's also one of those things where you, you, you can draw, you can't draw certain conclusions because in interrogations, law enforcement is allowed to say basically whatever they want to to trick the person into admitting to a crime so law enforcement will make some statements like oh yeah we have the evidence that you were the last person to talk to her we have the evidence that this well we know this and while much of it might be true they're allowed to make up lies to try to convince that person to cooperate to scare them into cooperation. So it's hard to take an interrogation transcript at face value and say, oh yeah, you know, clearly the case is solved and they just need one little, they just need this kid to admit it, admit that his dad did it, or admit that somebody he knew did it, because law enforcement might well have been lying to him to trick him. They obviously felt he was connected, but it's just one of those situations where it's like, huh, you know." All these sleuths now are pouring over the transcript and they're convinced that all of these things were factual, when you don't really know that. And you see this on TV interrogations, where, and they do this in real life, but where they'll tell a suspect, like, oh, your friend already cooperated. Oh yeah, we had your friend interrogated in the other room who you did this with, and he already told us it was all your idea. And they're lying when they do that. And they're legally allowed to do that. You know, they're legally allowed to tell that lie if they think it might pressure the person to crack. And it's fucked up because they do that to, like, the relatives of victims in order to clear them, which is traumatic. Like, they'll interview, like, if a girl gets killed, they'll interview her father and be like, oh, well, we already know you did it. Meanwhile, the guy's innocent, but they just, they have to do that as part of procedure, it's... And I guess in the bigger picture, if that helps them solve the crime and find the real person, it's okay, but... Can't even imagine how traumatic that is to be, like, your daughter gets killed and you get called into an interrogation room and they tell you you did it. Even if you know what they're doing, it's still fucked. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about interrogation in general. Of bluffing in an interrogation to get somebody to cooperate or tell you what you want to know. And I saw that happen in real life when I was a teenager myself. After Columbine, I mean, if if you weren't around, if you weren't in school when Columbine happened, you have no idea how heavily it impacted everything. They made our entire junior high, you know, I was in junior high at the time. They made it, our entire junior high sh- sign this big sheet of paper they, they printed off this huge sheet of paper that said in big black letters i will never bring a gun to school or something to that effect and it was influenced by columbine and then every single student in the school had to sign their name and then they hung that up in the hallway so in the hallway there was this giant Piece of paper that covered the entire wall. I will not bring a gun to school. Every single student's signature. Silly. Because, I mean, the person who's going to bring a gun to school is going to sign that. Oh, you know, I was actually planning to bring a gun to school, so I'm not going to sign that. It's insane. I'm like right by a school, and I'm talking about this. I'm like, fuck. (laughs) But uh, I'm literally like... On a sidewalk next to a high school. It's funny. Talking about guns at school. But, uh, you know, the the kind of person who's going to do that is, of course they're going to sign it. If they're plotting something like that, that isn't going to give them the moral clarity to not do it. And they're going to have no problem lying and just going along with the program. I mean, that's what the Columbine shooters did. That's what these people do and they probably enjoy the perverse thrill of lying about something like that. But what was interesting is, so this big poster was on the wall, this big sheet of paper with everybody's signature. And then it was up there for a little while, not very long. And then one day I walked by it and somebody had written in huge letters. You know, everybody's signatures, all the students who signed it, they signed their names really small because everybody in the school had to sign it. So you had hundreds of names. But behind all the names and huge letters, somebody had written the names Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. And I was like, whoa. I appreciated the statement. I didn't know who did it. I appreciated the statement. It was a pretty bold statement. Because the idea, I got the idea right away, which is, yeah, they would have signed it too. It's an empty gesture. The whole thing is just an empty gesture and they would have signed it too but it was crazy to see that like i didn't it didn't seem threatening at all like when i saw it i didn't think oh my god somebody's planning on doing that here i saw it and i just thought oh that's an interesting statement i'm surprised one of my peers thought to do it but i told my friends about it i was like check this out and we were all like whoa and immediately i was like it was probably one of the goth kids Because we had this little group of what would be called the goth kids. And they were really in their own self-imposed exile. Like, I don't know what they went through at an early age as far as, like, bullying in school went. But I've talked about them on here before, where they were extremely antagonistic. Like, most of their social problems were their own. And I, I don't believe in, like, if a kid's legitimately ostracized and bullied, I'll acknowledge that. Like, I knew kids like that. I knew kids who were kind of cast aside and treated poorly. But this group of kids, they were like the outward outcasts who were into shitty goth stuff, shitty they had shitty taste in music, shitty taste in fashion. And they were extremely antagonistic. And there were a couple of them that my friends and I kind of would talk to sometimes. Because it was interesting to watch their transition. Like, There were a couple of them, two or three of them, guys who... When they first came to school, they were just heshers. Like, they wore our camo cargo pants to school every single day. Megadeth, Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne shirts. Like, whatever the latest OzFest, Ozzy tour shirt was. Like, we're not talking about cool old shirts. It's not like they were wearing like some cool old Blizzard of Oz shirt or something. They would be wearing just whatever the latest, like, OzFest graphic t-shirt was. But they were just Heshers. You know, they were some of the only kids who liked heavy metal. They had like shaggy hair, dirty, wore camo pants. You know, they'd never done drugs. They were like 13 years old. They'd they'd never smoked pot really or anything like that. And they talked exactly like Beavis and Butthead. Like they they borrowed their personas entirely from Beavis and Butthead. Like they probably would have been that naturally. But they had seen Beavis and Butthead and grown up on it, so they also took on their way of laughing and talking and references and things. And we used to talk to them sometimes because they were kind of into some things. Like, they were into pro wrestling, they were into metal and music. They were just, you know, if you had a class with them, you might talk to them a little bit, but we were not friends with them. But they were extremely antagonistic. Like, they would always try to start shit with me. And I meant, I know I mentioned this before, because they, because they had borrowed their personas from Beavis and Butthead, they hated Danzig. They were on that whole trip that people were on back then, where they're like, Danzig's gay. And that's all from Beavis and Butthead, because Beavis and Butthead made fun of Danzig. They made fun of the Mother video or something like that. So even though these kids, like, they should have liked Danzig, like, based on everything they were into... Like, they should have been big fans. It never made sense to me, except for the fact that they had obviously seen this Beavis and Butthead episode where they mocked Danzig. But because I was a big Danzig fan, they would always give me shit about that. Sometimes serious shit. Like, they would actually try to pick fights with me and stuff. But what was weird is, like, I feel like if they had just stayed heshers who wore camo pants and listened to metal, they would have been cool. Maybe not my friends, but that would have been a cool thing to just stay in the pocket, you know, stay in the Hesher pocket, but then a couple of them, like, as junior high progressed, and they started kind of hanging out in the goth corner, they kind of took on the worst aspects of goth culture, and their their taste in music declined severely, which happens, you know, there's an ebb and a flow, like, I was into cool stuff when I was in, like, fifth grade, because I had an older sister, and then I was into awful stuff in seventh grade, And there's sort of this ebb and a flow to like being a music fan where like you'll you'll discover something really cool when you're young but it's a long road to 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 becoming an adult where you'll get into something just truly embarrassing after that it's not like once you find something cool you stay into cool things that's what happened with these kids where they were kind of into cool stuff like metallica megadeth ozzy you know they but they could have just stayed in that pocket but a couple of them got into like really terrible shit. And like one of them, he was kind of the ringleader. He used to wear pro wrestling shirts and camo pants. And he's he looked exactly like you'd expect, like really tall and skinny with acne craters all over his face. And like sort of like a little, just like a little like teenage mustache. Just barely a mustache. But then he transformed. Like, I think he, got, I think he started dating the main goth girl. And he transformed overnight. Like, he grew his hair out and dyed it black. And he started dressing kind of like the crow. You know, he started wearing that... Like, he didn't wear the white face paint, but he started putting, like, black lines on his face, like the crow. And then his taste in music just went downhill from there, too. Like, he got really... In, like, it was around the time that that band AFI got really big... There was that kind of i don't even know what to call them they were like i think they were supposed to be like a dark pop punk band but they got mainstream at some point around then like they started being on mtv and stuff and i don't even know what they sounded like at that point but one thing i knew about them because i was a huge misfits danzig Samhain fan i knew that they were trying to kind of mimic that imagery in a really bad way like the lead singer like would wear a devil lock like danzig did back in the day but this kid, and there were two of them were named Alex and they were best friends. So it was like these two kids named Alex and they were both best friends. Just kind of funny. Hesher's named Alex. But the one Alex, like the tall, skinny Alex who turned into the Crow, he got really into that band AFI and he used to give me shit about Danzig. And I remember like one time he, he brought it up on the bus because I remember everything, but he got on the bus and he was like, you have shit tasting music. And he started talking kind of like the crow. Like he started kind of doing this like whisper talk. It was, it was just really just... It was funny because it, it wasn't even like well executed. Because there were those kids in school who would do that and they would do it well. But he wasn't even doing it well. And he, he started giving me shit about Danzig. And I was like, dude, you have like an AFI patch on your arm. Like your favorite band worships this shit. But anyway... That's the, the sort of petty squabbles kids get into. But anyway, this kid, he started dating back to the, the Columbine mural or the Columbine contract. Because that's what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be like a contract. The whole, like, I will never bring a gun to school thing. It was supposed to be like we were all signing this contract. And that kid, like the kid I was just talking about... He was dating the main goth girl and her name was Faith. First person I ever met named Faith. And she kind of looked like a possum or something. Like she had, like her features were almost like Middle Eastern, but she had very, very pale skin and no eyebrows and bleached hair. And she was definitely the queen of the goths. And she was not attractive. Like I remember one of the girls was kind of attractive. You know, I definitely, I like a good goth girl. But the main girl, it was kind of amazing. Like, she was not even remotely attractive, but she had queen status among them, so it was kind of perfect. But I just, for some reason, I was just like, I bet she wrote it. My friend and I, like, after we saw the Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris names on the mural, we were like, I bet she wrote it. We just intuitively guessed that it was her. And she used to walk home the same way we did after school. And uh, she would pass by us, and we would exchange some kind of small talk about something or another. And as she walked by, my friend Nick, Nick, who you know is a junior detective himself, a natural detective, a natural little PI, he brought up the the Columbine names. He was like, did you see somebody wrote the names of the Columbine shooters on the I will not bring a gun to school paper? And she goes like, yeah, so? And he goes, why'd you do it? And she like, she kind of like stammered. She got really uncomfortable. And she goes, what made you think I did it? And Nick goes, without missing a beat, and Nick goes, I saw you. And then she just admitted it. It was amazing because we had no idea that she did it like we had zero idea that it was her who took the marker and wrote the names but i was i was so impressed with nick's natural ability at like 13 years old or whatever age we were that he brought it up to her as she passed by he was just like why'd you write the names on there and then just that she kind of got uncomfortable And then said, "Like, why do you think I did? Why would you think I did it? I saw you." And he said it with such confidence, like he didn't pause and say it after thought. He said it like he actually did see her, and that changes her entire worldview. Because I'm sure when she did it, she was very secretive, like because it was written very haphazardly. It was just like scrawled up there. It's not like she stood in front of the sign for half hour, making sure every letter was perfect. Like, she obviously was walking by it, probably on a bathroom break, because nobody was around. And it was in this corner, kind of by the lunchroom. Like, I'm sure she just, like, went up there really quick and scrawled the names. That's what it looked like. But it's like, it changes her entire worldview, where, like, now she's imagining that, like, somebody was off to the side, observing this whole situation. Kitty. Run away kitty runs away i haven't touched a cat in a while it's crazy it's it's weird for me to think about how i used to have cats my whole life and i haven't for three years yeah it's been almost exactly three years since rosie passed away it's just wild how just something that small can change but anyway it's like that nick saying i saw you and her immediately cracking and admitting admitting that it was her it's like that changes her entire view. Where now she now like her memory of the situation is forever changed. Like her memory of the situation now is that, oh, there was somebody in the locker bay or off to the side watching me do it. But I was so impressed. Like I was so taken aback. Like I, you know, this is my best friend, and I saw him do a lot of things like that over the years. But how seamlessly he went from saying why'd you write it to I saw you it didn't give her even a moment it didn't even give her a moment to think about it and that's that's one of the keys to interrogation is that you don't give them a moment to think about it like if you're gonna bluff like that to them if you're gonna lie to kind of force an admission you don't even give them a moment to think about it And then after she admitted to it, we talked about why she did it. Like, we weren't upset. We weren't scared. We didn't think that she was going to do anything. Like I was saying, when I first saw it, before I even know for sure who did it, I kind of understood the message. That it's an empty gesture to have everybody sign that, because somebody who's going to do that is going to sign it too. And that's what she said. You know, because she was smart for sure. You know, while those kids were kind of, like, antagonistic and had their issues, and they weren't friends with us, they weren't idiots. And she basically said that. She was like, it's just a really, it's like a hollow gesture to make everybody sign that. And I put their names on there for that reason, because they would have signed it, too. And we were just like, good answer. We didn't rat her out. You know, good for her for trusting us. You know, because, I mean, that could have ruined her life right then. Like, if we had been the kind of kids who would tell on you for that, and obviously if there was some kind of imminent threat, that'd be different. But, uh, you know, because you, you, you went and told the, the faculty, oh, yeah, she admitted that she wrote the names of the school shooters. Could very well have gotten her expelled or arrested or who knows what. Cops could have gone to her house. I mean, I don't think, even, even in the immediate aftermath of Columbine, I don't think things were even as sensitive as they are now. In some ways they were. Like I know of multiple friends, both male and female, who went to different schools from me. And when this has come up, they've mentioned how they both got, like three different kids I know offhand, got called down to the office the day after Columbine because they wore a lot of black. And what's so funny about that is, one of them for example he was just like into hardcore and metal you know he wasn't some brooding hater he wasn't some brooding school shooter type he just he would wear like black hardcore metal shirts like i did for that matter but they could you know that's the thing is they can't differentiate like school staff like just sees that a kid wears black t-shirts and they don't understand that, oh, his t-shirts correspond to a very niche interest that he's passionate about and it's healthy. And it actually probably distracts him from brooding in a state of angry misery. Whereas, yeah, like the kid who you know wears the black trench coat every day is coming from a different place. But they're not going to be able to differentiate that. But yeah, multiple friends of mine got interrogated there's that word by uh the the staff by the administration of their high schools because they just they dressed a certain way so there was a hysteria but there was i I don't remember like protocol developing right away i don't remember like an immediate protocol for like if there's the slightest indication a kid is a threat they'll like raid his house and expel him and investigate him i don't know if that was really in place at the time so I don't know what would have happened if we had turned this girl in. She might have just gotten a slap on the wrist. Today she'd be in a lot more trouble. But she trusted us by admitting it. But yeah, just the whole point of the story was just like I couldn't believe how seamlessly Nick bluffed. Cause like he could have said like that very well could have gone. Like if she didn't write it, he could have said, I saw you, and she goes, Well, it's not possible. Or even if, even if she did write it, but she was just not going to admit it under any circumstances. When Nick, just without a beat, said, without missing a beat, said, I saw you. She very well could have just stuck to her guns and said, I didn't do it. There's no way you could have saw, seen me. But uh, that's an interrogation technique, and there's a reason why that's effective. And that happened to me. I know I've told the story on here about when I was just wasted out of my mind at karaoke, and this pickpocket stole my girlfriend's friend's money out of her purse, she stole like hundreds of dollars in cash, and the bartender tracked the woman down, and took all the woman's money out of her purse, which was more than she stole from us, from my girlfriend's friend, and gave it all to us, which wasn't, it wasn't a lot more, but there was definitely like an extra 40 to 80 bucks that was in there, so he just, he just grabbed her purse and he just like stole, he took all the money out and gave it to us, and we, I was fucked up, so we followed the woman down the street, because she had been with a guy who didn't get caught, and we weren't happy with how it was resolved, like it was really sketchy the way the bartender tried to settle the matter, I'm guessing he didn't want the cops to come, I'm guessing he didn't want a big thing to happen, so he just took the money, but we ended up following the woman down the street to get more answers out of her, because we didn't we didn't like the way it was resolved, and I took charge because I was fucked up. And I, I started interrogating her on the street because I wanted to know more about the guy she was with. Because she and, a, and like a middle-aged guy, you know, he had like gray hair spiked up, like gelled up and black frame glasses. He looked like a hip middle-aged man. And she was just like this little mousy blonde woman. Like, you know, you, you can imagine her making arts and crafts. Like, neither of them seemed like pickpockets. But we kind of we followed her down the street, and I was like, I want to know more. Why'd you do it? Who was the guy? She's like, I don't know him. I just met him randomly. She's like, I, I was like, you're lying to me. I was like, how do you know him? I was like, you planned this. And I think a, like a big feature of this is to not give them time to think, because that's what I did. Is I was like, I'm not gonna give them any time to think. And by doing that, because she she tried to lie her way out of it, like she admitted that she had stolen the money, but she was refusing to implicate the guy in it, even though it was clear they were a pickpocketing duo. And she's like, I don't know him, you know, I was like, have you done this before? She's like, no. And I'm like, I know you have. And she's like, okay, I have. And you know, I'm not proud of it because it's like, would I have done that to a big guy? Probably not you know, I definitely picked my spot, but I remember my motivation was like, I want to make sure this woman is too scared to steal from these people again, because if she hadn't been caught, like my girlfriend's friend, I think she was like a server, a waitress, and that was her tip money, that was her rent money, she had gotten off work or something and just happened to have all her cash with her in her purse, and, uh, so it was this situation where, it's like if she hadn't gotten that money back, she would have been screwed. And, uh, you know, I remember like one of my motivations for interrogating the woman was just, I want to make sure that she never wants to do this again. So I kind of like loomed over her and I was just like, tell me this, tell me that. And I didn't even really know what I was doing, but I didn't give her any room to think like i didn't give her any room to think about her answers and when she would lie i'd be like i know you're lying this blah blah blah." and that she eventually cracked like you know because if you don't give someone time to think they'll just they might very well just start telling you the truth and then it came out that the guy she was with was her neighbor and they would drink wine together and stuff. And they had stolen before. And you know, we didn't. We ended up just letting her go. But of course, I mean, what are we going to do? Citizen's arrest. But uh, that was my only experience with doing that. And I remember in the moment, like there was a rhythm to it. Like even though I was wasted and belligerent, and I was, I really was out of line. I really was. Like I think, I think it was okay. I don't think it was the worst thing. Like my girlfriend was really upset cause she was like, I thought, you know, she thought that I didn't have control over myself. Like she thought that I was you kind know, of like, who knows what? Cause I was, my, my body language and stuff was very intimidating. Like I was like looming over her and like directing my pointer finger at her. It was very commanding and angry. And I wasn't a belligerent drunk, so, you know, know, this isn't something that was typical of me at all. But I was so pissed that they stole from us. Because that could have been any of us. It just happened to be our friend's purse. But I was so... Because we were having such a fun night, too. It was one of those things where we were having this really fun night with karaoke. And then she looked at her purse and was like, someone just stole my entire wallet. And they had done it so sneakily. And you wonder how those sorts of duos form, like, this woman eventually admitted that this guy's name was, who knows what, Gary. And I could tell she was telling the truth at that point, you know, like, she cracked. But she was like, he, he's my neighbor, like, we drink wine together, and it's like, you wonder how that came about. It's kind of like that father and son with the Delphi murders case, like, both being involved with kitty porn, like, how does that come up? or on the rare occasion you do hear about like serial killer duos like you just wonder how that casual conversation goes up like she's hanging out with her neighbor who knows what's going on between them but like one of them is just like oh yeah you ever you ever like to gotten steal you ever like to gotten steal from people you know how do you introduce that idea it's like two thieves just happen to live next to each other ...and casually bring it up. Like, hey, you ever want to do that together? Probably erotic to them. But, uh... And after it was done, like, my girlfriend's friend was like... It felt like an action movie. And she gave me part of the money. I didn't want to take it. Because, like I said, there was extra money... ...that wasn't my girlfriend's friend's. Because the bartender just took all the money out of the woman's purse when she got caught... Which, like I said, I'm not happy with that. But it was chaotic, it was weird. And because my girlfriend's friend got all this extra money too, like I think 80 bucks or something, she's like, here's 20. And I was like, I don't wanna take that. She's like, just take it. She was very impressed by by my interrogation of the woman because none of us felt it was resolved, but I, I took it too far. You know, I definitely, and my girlfriend was really upset for a day. She was really scared. Because the thing was even though I was I was very belligerent and I was drunk like I knew exactly what my boundary was. I knew exactly where the line was. I really did. But my girlfriend had never seen anything like that and not just from me, from anybody because the next day I could tell she felt weird. Like we all had an adrenaline kick that night so we kind of had a good time or whatever. We all just hung out. But the next day, when I talked to my girlfriend, I could could tell that she was really disturbed. And I was like, oh, are you upset about how things went down last night? And she's like, yeah, I've just, I've just never known anybody who's done that. (laughs) And I was like, fair enough. You're artsy and you hang out with very, very passive people who, when they are aggressive, it's passive aggressive. I didn't say this, but it's like, you're, you're used to hanging out with people who are very passive. And I'm generally fairly passive, but... You know, when it comes to a situation like that, I can kind of snap into something. It's happened very few times in my life, but it... I am capable of going into that mode of acting like a bulldog or something, but... Yeah, that's what she said. She's just like, I've just never known anybody who's done that. But... Uh, interrogation that is one of the there's something intuitive about it you know even though that's something that's taught to law enforcement officers there is a rhythm and there is something intuitive that comes out of you when you're trying to get the truth out of somebody which you ask them very tactful questions when they're evasive you make it clear that you don't believe them And when you challenge them, or ask them something very pointed, you give them no room to think. You don't let them plan it out in their head. And when you catch them in an inconsistency, you point that out. But you bluff a little, too. I think that's, that's what I'm getting at here. With my friend Nick, bluffing to the girl, with law enforcement in interrogation rooms, bluffing. You tell a lie that you think will get the truth out of them, which is interesting. You're the innocent party, but you're telling a lie because you think it will extract the truth. You think that that lie will put the perfect amount of pressure on the situation to get them to crack. And it doesn't always work that way. But it is interesting how, like, in order to get the truth sometimes we use lies. Cause if you do have an innocent person, they're just gonna be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it's just you just kinda go, okay, moving on. But I saw you, or I know, I know you're lying. You know, that's that's how you do it. Unfortunately. Fortunately, it's not something that comes up very often. But you can tell a lot about how someone's mind works in in that sort of situation. Because one thing I did say to the woman when I was interrogating her was, you don't know what we're capable of, which I understand sounds kind of threatening, but I was trying to make kind of a philosophical point. Like, I did say more. I was like, you don't know what we are capable of. Like, you don't, when you steal from someone, you're taking a gamble because you don't know what that person is capable of. And the point I was making is, it's the same thing, it's the same reason I don't give people the middle finger on the road anymore. Because like, when you give somebody the middle finger on the road, you have no idea what that person's capable of. And we know what some people are capable of. And so that's the point I was trying to make to that woman, I was like, when you steal money from somebody and they catch you, you don't know what's gonna happen. Like You don't know how that person's gonna react, and it could be really bad could be really bad for you and bad for the person. And so I understand that sounded kind of threatening. Like I was saying, like, you don't know what we're capable of. You don't know who you're messing with. But the truth is, I did kind of want to put a scare into her to not do that again. I realize now that's probably in vain. You know, I realize somebody who has a, a true pathological tendency to steal or commit a crime, just scaring them might not be enough because they might very well like that. They might very well like flirting with the danger of that but uh, yeah I was thinking about that because reading this interrogation that law enforcement did with this kiddie porn guy they were doing that to him and it was hard to tell when they were lying just to coerce him to admit to something versus when they were actually stating something because some of it was evidently true some of what they said to him about his father and some of the other details about his communication with the girl leading up to her murder some of that was evidently true but it's hard to tell where because you can because that's i think that's the most effective thing at all of all is using something that has basis and then elaborating on it like taking something that's true and then twisting it a little bit to take it a step further I mean, that's exactly like the the Ted Bundy thing I was saying, where he used his real name. He was doing an act pretending to be an injured man who needed help, but he used his real name because it's like he took the truth. He took who he really was. He used his real name and his real vehicle, but then he took it to the next level by then creating a ruse out of that. So it's like it had a foundation in reality, but then he twisted it and that's one side of the law against the law the dark side but you can see where police officers do something similar well they'll take something that has a basis in fact and they twist that to take it to the next level to try to get an admission or something it's all very interesting because i mean it's intuitive psychology you, know, you can teach somebody about human psychology but there are so many little things that come from observation and interaction and interrogation is very spur of the moment even if it's planned ahead of time and they know what they're going to ask and they know what they're going to say you don't always know how that person's going to respond and as a result you have to improvise a little bit and you have to have a good sense of timing And that's obviously something that some people do naturally like talking about my friend nick i was i was so impressed with him i was so impressed with his ability to just as a 13 year old to get that girl to confess to signing those names it was it came so naturally i don't think other people would be able to do that i don't think other people would be able to just do that right then and there and i saw him do that many times things like that you know he's the same one that i've told the story on here where like we were hanging out in a, by a gravel alley on our elementary school playground and a couple friends of ours were just kind of throwing rocks in the alley and then he pointed out to me look that car has a dent in it the dent was not caused by a rock the dent was obviously from We knew the lady, it was our friend, our classmate's mom, and they lived across the street from the school. She was a wino. I have no doubt she made that dent. She had too many glasses of wine and tried backing out of her driveway and like hit a pole or a rock or something. But we were in second grade, so we were like seven or eight years old. And Nick was like, see, there's a a dent there. I'm gonna tell the teacher that Nathan threw that rock and it made the dent. And I laughed. I didn't think he was serious. And then we get back to the classroom after recess, and I'm sitting at my desk, and like right behind me is the teacher, and I, I suddenly hear Nick talking to her, and he goes, yeah, it, it, very innocently, he's like, yeah, when we were out on the playground, you know, Nathan was throwing rocks, and he threw one and it made a dent in a car. And she was like, "Oh!" and then it turned into, you know, I'm retelling this, but it turned into this whole ordeal. Where all I think there were like six of us who had been playing over there, and all six of us got detention it was, like I think his idea was that, oh, I'm going to get Nathan in trouble just to screw with him, and you know Nick wasn't a bad kid, he was just playing he was just testing the boundaries of reality truly and uh, <laughs> and he's a psychologist now, so I mean he was just he was learning how psychology works. But we all ended up getting detention for the crime of being there. They told us, it was an early lesson in guilt by association, because they told us, because you were there when he threw the rock, we're giving you all detention because you didn't stop him. We were all part of the conspiracy, I guess. And what's so insane about it is Nathan actually believed he threw the rock at that point. The only people in this group... All six of us. The only people who knew the truth at that point were me and Nick. Nick made up the lie. He told me that he was gonna make up the lie. The kid who threw the rock, or didn't throw the rock, he threw a rock down an alleyway that didn't hit anything. He actually came to believe that he threw a rock and dented a car, something you'd think you'd remember. Like when I was a little kid, there was an abandoned house in my neighborhood, an old man had died there, and they left the house abandoned. So me and some neighbor kids went over there and we got a bunch of rocks, and we broke out all the windows. Not all of them, but a bunch of them on one side of the house, and it was really fun. (laughs) But uh, you know, we were just little kids at the time, really young. And the house was falling apart, it was a true abandoned house. and. We ended up getting, like, like, the neighbor came out, some middle-aged guy, and he got us in trouble, and we had to pay to replace the windows, and then they tore the house down a short time later and rebuilt a new one. So they were already planning on tearing this house down, but just for the principle of it or something, our families had to pay to replace the windows that we broke. It's like, we actually saved you some work. You are going to tear it down. You, t- you tore it down, like, a month later, two months later just insane it was a little lesson in absurdity for us where it's like yeah we did something wrong you shouldn't break even an abandoned house you shouldn't break out the windows what's funny about it though is my friend's little brother who was like tiny i mean he was honestly probably four or five years no not even he's probably four years old he wasn't in school yet he started it you think that the older kids would have been responsible My friend's little four-year-old brother was with us he picked up like the heaviest piece of like broken off concrete he could find and he just hucked it through this first story window and we couldn't believe it and then we smiled and started laughing and then we started doing it like we couldn't believe he did it at first he threw the rock like you'd think the opposite would be true you'd think like the, the older brother and his friend would be the ones who started doing it and then convinced the little kid to do it no, the little kid, on his own, with this really devilish look on his face, picked up the heaviest piece he could find, held it with two hands above his head, and just lobbed it. And I still remember the window. I still remember watching it just sail through the window, and it made the most satisfying, shattering sound. Like it, The thing is that the reason why we all joined in is because it looked and sounded so satisfying, with this satisfying sound of destruction. And we all joined in, and then this, like, irate neighbor goes, What the heck? What are you doing? What's weird, too, is the old man who died there was ancient. His name was Otto. O-T-T-O. He'd been in the neighborhood forever. Old man Otto. He was extremely old, so he was bound to die anyway. But I heard that he died via electrocution. So, that's kind of fucked. This abandoned house where an old man electrocuted himself to death. And we're just throwing rocks through it. But yeah, going back to the, the other rock incident that actually didn't happen. It was a, an early lesson. It was worth the detention. Like, even though we all got a detention, it was worth it because I learned in that moment that you could tell a lie that would become reality really quickly. Like, Nick told a lie to try to get our friend in trouble which isn't even typical of Nick. You know, Nick wasn't even the type of kid who like snitched or made things up to get people in trouble. But just he had a wild hair that day and wanted to see what would happen. He wanted to see how much he could bend reality. Because we were both, that's why we were friends, is like even at a young age, we kind of wanted to see how we could manipulate the reality around us. And we learned that day, you could actually manipulate it far. And it was worth getting a detention for nothing. Because four out of six boys who were all there, including the one who allegedly threw this rock, all believe they did it. And the reason I brought up the abandoned house story is because I didn't forget that. Like, if I threw a rock at a car and it made a dent, I would remember that. Especially the day it happened. I would know if I did that or not. Like, if I had been in that abandoned house... And one of those other kids said that we threw rocks into the house and we didn't, you know, I I would be like, I was there. I knew it didn't happen. So with this other kid who, you know, threw the rock at the car, like what blew my mind is that he didn't, he he didn't remember (laughs) that he didn't do it. It was like the fact that Nick lied about it convinced him. And it convinced all the other kids that they had witnessed it, I guess. I'm just like, that is so wild. And then we had to write apology letters to the lady who owned the car. And she wrote us a letter back. Like, they called us... We, we had to go into this weird little, like, space or room in between the classrooms and write letters together apologizing to this woman for something that never happened. And I guarantee you, she knew the dent was already there. It's her car. The dent's there. She knows it's there. But she wrote us this really sweet letter back and she's like, "Oh, thank you so much. I got your letters. You guys don't need to pay for it. It's okay." Cuz she knew. Like she she knew that she caused that dent. She it probably blew her mind. And you know what? To to her credit, like I knew her. Her name was Shelley. She was uh, sort of a sort of an acquaintance's friend. But you know Shelley, she was a very sweet woman, but kind of a whino. And I'm sure she backed into something and knew the dent was there. But you know, she could have lied about it herself and gotten a free. She could, she could have gotten that dent fixed for free, and just if she had gone along with it. Oh, I know that I caused that dent, but hey, these kids are willing, you know, to, to lie and say they did it. Might as well take their money. You know, God bless her for not doing that. At least somebody in that situation was <laughs> doing the right thing. But uh, I just remember thinking, like this is so surreal. Some you know, we're in trouble for something that didn't happen. Everybody except for two people believes it happened. We're writing apology letters for something that never happened. But fortunately, the lady just said, "You know what?" It's okay. I'm not going to take your money. And maybe that's the lesson to learn from all this. Maybe everybody should be like Shelley. This land is mine. And run free.